Hi, I'm Talia Baroncelli, and you're watching TheAnalysis.News. Joining me in a bit is former NPR correspondent Sarah Chase to speak about her new book on corruption in America and what is at stake. Before we get to it, if you'd like to make a small donation to the show, you can do so by going to our website, TheAnalysis.News, and hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Make sure you're also on our mailing list. That way you're always up to date if there's a new episode. And like and subscribe to our show wherever you listen to the podcast, be it on YouTube, Spotify, Apple. And we'll see you in a bit with Sarah Chase. Joining me now is Sarah Chase. She's a former NPR correspondent and author of numerous books, including On Corruption in America and What is at Stake, which is also known as Everybody Knows, just in case you're buying the book outside of North America in Europe. It has a different title, so just pointing that out. And Sarah has also been a special advisor to the U.S. military in Afghanistan and has served as an advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So thank you very much for joining me today, Sarah. Thanks for having me, Talia. Just a quick side note to our viewers and listeners, you'll be able to hear Sarah today, but you won't actually be able to see her. Nevertheless, we're going to have a great discussion. So I wanted to start off, Sarah, by pointing to the experience you've had in numerous countries abroad, such as in Afghanistan, in Uzbekistan, in Nigeria, and several other countries. And in your book, you speak about the conversations you've had with people on the ground and how they point to the networks of corruption that exist in those societies and how the consolidation of elite structures and elite corruption actually mirror networks in the United States. So I was wondering, what actually prompted you to draw this conclusion in the first place? First was the issue of patterns. I actually very, in the very beginning, came to corruption through living and working in Afghanistan, where, in fact, it was Afghans who brought the matter to me. It was not me coming in with some kind of Western, you know, set of standards and imposing them on the local population. I thought I was doing development work and all Afghans wanted to talk about was corruption. And I found that, first of all, really interesting because we have a tendency to consider corruption to be somehow cultural and countries like Afghanistan or Nigeria or the former Soviet bloc or whatever, that's just, quote, part of their culture. Whereas it was Afghans who were screaming about it and the Americans and other international interveners were much less concerned about the corruption that they were you know, one way or another participating in and sometimes even enabling. And yet still for years, I thought that what I was dealing with was a ph phenomenon specific to this Afghan context. And then around 2010, I gave a talk actually about drugs um, uh, to a multinational audience. Um, and I couldn't resist at the very end of that talk, including uh, a slide that showed that narcotics was not a standalone issue, that narcotics, in fact, was part and parcel of the corruption issue, because so many government uh, officials in Afghanistan were very wound into the drug trafficking networks. 
And and so I kind of, you know, talk for five minutes about how corruption is not, in fact, a single scandal or, you know, an aberration because of one greedy official, but rather it's a kind of operating system of a whole sophisticated network. And after that talk, people came down to me to say, oh, my God, you just described my country. And I was looking and the countries were spread across the globe. And interestingly to me, many of them had what you could consider ideological extremist insurgencies that were attacking the government. And so I started to see that pattern. And so then I spent much of the next, I would say, you know, half dozen years galloping around a lot of these countries like Nigeria, as you mentioned, and Uzbekistan, Egypt, various Arab Spring countries, in fact, um, uh, Latvia, you know, I mean, just a number of quite disparate countries on different continents. And what I discovered was, although I had no area expertise in any of these regions, I don't know much about Central Asia. I had never been to Africa or Latin America before. I, I mean, sub-Saharan Africa. And yet I knew the questions to ask. And I saw the very same patterns showing up time and time and time again. It doesn't mean that this, you know, the way these networks operated was absolutely identical in every country, of course. And it doesn't mean that the, that the revenue streams they catch, captured were the same. But nevertheless, there were really significant parallels from country to country to country. And even when my second book, Thieves of State, was published, I warned, this was in 2015, I warned, you know what? This ain't just developing countries. This is us. I was looking at 2008 and what had happened. You know, I kind of took a snapshot of Ireland, Great Britain, and the United States. And I said, you know, it's happening here in the most developed countries too. And just like in places like Nigeria and Afghanistan, it is going to lead to crisis. I thought that crisis was a little bit further down the road. And it turns out that it kind of started to hit around 2016. Um, and so then it became obvious that I needed to write about my own country, the United States. What role did Seagar play in your understanding of the issue? Seagar being the special inspector general on Afghanistan reconstruction, and they published numerous reports on the corruption in the Afghan National Defense Security Forces and how um, once the U.S. withdrew from Afghanistan, the Afghan security forces basically collapsed and uh, weren't able to fight the Taliban due to the, the corruption, which was endemic in their forces. So what role did Seagar play in your understanding of the problem, if at all, or did that come much later? Yeah, a lot later. Seagar <laughs> didn't exist when I started working on corruption in Afghanistan. Um, I didn't need an outside report. At ordinary Afghans were coming to me starting actually in 2002, immediately. Uh, Afghans were coming to me. I was uh, actually setting up a radio station and, and brought together a kind of focus group of young people 
who, um, you know, I wanted to know what did they want to hear on the radio. And within, you know, half an hour, we were talking about security. But they didn't mean security against the Taliban. They meant security from the militia of the guy who had shoved his way into the position of governor um, because that militia was setting itself up on street corners and shaking people down for money. And unfortunately, that militia had been the United States proxy in its initial fight against the Taliban in 2001. And these militiamen were wearing U.S. Army uniforms. And so this is way back in 2002, people are complaining about this. And the problem was that from their perspective, these militiamen were wearing American uniforms. Therefore, the United States must be in support or in favor of the crimes that these militiamen were perpetrating. And that was the kind of refrain that went on for the whole decade that I lived in Afghanistan, that from the perspective of Afghans, the American, the whole American establishment in Afghanistan was enabling and reinforcing the corrupt shakedowns of ordinary people. And they just couldn't, they couldn't understand it. I mean, they said like, why are you trying to hurt the very population that you say you're supporting? Why are you allowing the government that you are, you know, paying for and arming and making the police and making, you know, and paying the salaries of everyone? If you're paying their salaries, you should have some say in how government officials are treating the population. And this was a message I just in 10 years was not able to get through to American, you know, decision makers. So we currently have a problem of monopoly capitalism in which so many of the defense contractors, particularly in the U.S., such as Lockheed Martin and Raytheon, they have a monopoly of the defense sector. And it means that they can sort of influence pricing, but also influence what munitions are produced and at which rate they're produced. And they can make certain contracts with um, with the Department of Defense. And so you, arguably they have a huge role in determining U.S. foreign policy. And the reason I bring this up is you were writing a lot about the Gilded Age and also the, the 20s and the 30s. And in the 30s, there was a report led by U.S. Senator Gerald Nye called the Nye Commission. And this investigation interrogated the role of bankers, the banking sector and the arms industry in leading a Wilson to enter World War One, And regardless of what the conclusion was of that report, I think it's safe to say that they also, you know, shaped the, the foreign policy dimensions at the time. So I just wonder how f- much of this monopoly capitalism uh, analysis factors into your understanding of the problem of corruption. So I love, I love the example that you just offered, Talia, um, because I think you can look at those two sectors, uh, the fi- financial industry and the defense sector, and both of them control a great deal of how the United States government operates, both on the foreign and the domestic um, levels. And, and to be honest, I think that's true 
in a great many other countries around the world, both developing and developed. But to return to the United States, that example raises a couple of points. Um, one is we often talk about the revolving door between the private sector and government. So, you know, you use the expression monopoly capitalism, but I would frame it, invite us to think about it also in another way, which is as a strand in the horizontally integrated network of what I would kleptocratic network, the horizontally integrated kleptocratic network. And in that light, you can also revise your understanding of the revolving door, which implies that it's just a single individual who's pushing a door you know, from his job in industry to his job in government or, or in the other direction. So if you start to look at the entire sector of financial services or defense um, and the Pentagon, the Treasury, the Federal Reserve on the one hand, and defense contractors and banks and money managers on the other, you start to see it's a, it's a highway connecting public and private. So what you actually have is a weaving of this kleptocratic network by constant exchanges of personnel between public and private sector in both of those spheres, defense and finance. And the results are you know, if we return to Afghanistan, the results are devastating. On the defense side, what you had was vast expenditures of U.S. taxpayer money creating an army and police in Afghanistan that were completely unsuited to the nature of the conflict. We were creating basically a standing conventional army that required incredibly sophisticated, expensive, and difficult to maintain materiel um, in a place that is, you know, coated with dust like talcum powder, uh, mountainous, very difficult terrain with not a great deal of um, not a deep bench of well-trained operators or maintenance experts. On the other side, you had the Taliban who didn't have any of this stuff. I kept hearing for years about how the Afghan National Army could fight on its own. It just needed medevac and, you know, and, and close air support. And I'm like, well, wait a second, the Taliban don't have close air support and they're doing fine. And so, as you suggest, it was clearly this mindset that had been built up over years by the defense industry that its gadgets were the best way to wage war that caused us to make a fantastic mistake in military terms, purely military terms, uh, in the way that we address the challenge in Afghanistan. And then on the banking side, what you have is the very same sector. So starting in about 2002 or three, the decision was made to create a banking, a formal banking sector in Afghanistan. So who does that? Financial industry professionals from the United States. Now, 2002, 2003, that period, what's happening in the United States in the banking sector? We are inflating a massive bubble, right, through systemic fraud. 
that's how the crisis of 2008 happened. There was systemic fraud was being selected for by the in incentive structure in the banking industry. That's the same people who created the formal banking system in Afghanistan, which turned out to be, you know, uh, an absolute Ponzi scheme. And the United States government was running the salaries of all of the Afghan defense forces through Kabul Bank, which, you know, had a billion dollar, practically a billion dollar hole in it, approximately a tenth of Afghanistan's GDP was the hole in Kabul Bank, which, which was discovered in 2010. And so the failure driven by the capture of those two sectors that you mentioned, defense and finance, the failure you know, resulted in the worst defeat of the United States on the battlefield since Vietnam, for quite similar reasons, in fact. Well, it seems like what you're describing is a large conflict of interest that exists internationally. You have companies or private asset managers such as BlackRock, State Street, Vanguard, who are heavily invested in the domestic debt of certain countries. I'm thinking of Sri Lanka, for example, uh, which has numerous debt or international sovereign bonds which have been issued by BlackRock. And also in other contexts, private asset managers are heavily invested in the border and surveillance industry in, in Europe and in the United States. And so you have this instance in which the boards of these companies are then shifting and taking on roles as politicians in, in the political sphere and then going back to uh, the boards of these companies again. And I don't want to use uh, the metaphor of the revolving door because you've pointed out that that's not really an accurate or adequate description of the corruption issue. Um, but it does seem like there needs to be a different regulatory framework. Or is that not the right understanding of it? Is it just that, you know, we have the right rules, but they're just not being implemented properly? It's a problem of enforcement. Or would you say that we need a completely different regulatory framework as well? Both. Uh, that's, again, a really great question. And we could return to BlackRock, too, because there are some very interesting issues uh, to do with BlackRock. Um, but the fact is, number one, that since about the late 1980s, the Supreme Court of the United States has been narrowing and narrowing and narrowing the effective legal definition of corruption to the point that today you have to be practically jailable for stupidity to actually commit um, a crime that would fall under this very mincing legal definition of corruption. Um, it, 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 you know, so, so it's become almost impossible to prosecute corruption even under the laws as they stand. Um, but I think your suggestion, your initial suggestion is actually right that those laws are way too, um, you know, straitjacketed to address the real issues. So let's take another American um, situation, which is 
that of the son of President Biden, Hunter. Now, again, no false equivalencies here. Uh, no one has spoken as loudly about, you know, uh, former President Trump's children who were openly and almost ostentatiously making use of their father's influence to feather their own nest to the tune of tens of millions of dollars. Um, but to look at Hunter Biden, um, you know, he was very clearly uh, monetizing his last name. Let's put it that way. Uh, he had no experience in the domains in which he was receiving positions and being handsomely paid. I think you also suggested another example, which is um, former officials going onto boards of directors um, and then returning to government service. Uh, another kind of model, particularly in the foreign field that I've noticed, it's quite similar to that, is people who leave the U.S. State Department or foreign ministries, and then set up consulting firms. Um, and then, you know, and so they offer businesses uh, advice on how to conduct uh, investments and other business practices in foreign countries. And then on the side, these same officials will set up a hedge fund. And they will then be making investments based on the insider information that they obtain through their consulting practice or through their prior diplomatic experience. Uh, and I've seen several examples of these. Um, it's almost become common, um, common practice. All of this stuff needs to be severely curtailed. And what that, I think, would imply in terms of legislation would have to be a dramatic tightening of, to use your expression, the conflict of interest laws um, and the revolving door laws. So uh, much higher standards for when an official would need to recuse themselves or, eat, or um, business that they could not undertake for a significant amount of time after uh, they leave office. And I think what we touch on with this, with this aspect of the conversation gets to ethics, actually, and gets to what is people's motivation. If your motivation is money, if you are in the mindset where your social standing is measured by the number of zeros in your bank account, then you should not be in government service. Government service should be, um, I think, should appeal to people on the basis of a completely different motivation, which has to do with, you know, the good that they can do for their fellow citizens and ideally for people around the world. And, and it's not that they should be poor uh, making that commitment, but once you start to confuse, you know, your bank account with your public service, everyone's in trouble. 
a lot of your book also speaks about the 80s as this really seminal decade for the financialization of the economy. And you speak about how, I guess it would have been in the early 80s when you graduated, you saw so many people, so many of your fellow students and colleagues who were going into the financial services sector. And I think the way you analyze it is that you were thinking to yourself, why are people going into this sector rather than actually doing something worthwhile that has an effect on people that actually produces something tangible rather than just contributing to the financialization of the markets and to all the accompanying um, speculation that comes along with it. And one thing I thought was really fascinating is how you allude to two really important films from the 80s, namely Risky Business with Tom Cruise and uh, Money Never Sleeps the film that was directed by Oliver Stone. And you speak about how these these films show how money has been so fetishized and this, you know, striving for the constant uh, profit maximization is something that's so embedded in U.S. hegemonic cultural norms, so to speak. Um, so maybe we could speak about how important these values are of just you know, making money for money's sake, as well as the financialization of the economy and how that has really torpedoed um, and accelerated the, the global inequalities that we see. Yeah, so it's kind of a crazy book. This book, everybody knows, or on corruption in America, depending on which um, version of it you happen to see. It's a crazy book because you know, it does talk about the time periods that you have mentioned, but it also brings in myth. And very early in the book, I um, look at the myth of Midas. And it's, I've found that an incredibly instructive story to contemplate, to meditate on. Um, because, you know, today when you talk about somebody having the Midas touch, that's seen as a positive. It's absolutely extraordinary because the whole point of the myth is that within seconds of winning the power that he had wished for for his entire life uh, to turn whatever he touched into gold, King Midas understood what a deadly, fatal horrific um, threat it was to everything that he held dear. Um, and so to me, what I, what, what I brought out of that story is the idea of the Midas disease. The Midas disease is this compulsion, this race with no finish line to accumulate ever more and more and more and more and more, not gold anymore. It's not even a physical substance. It's, it's electronic signals in a bank account. Um, and uh, the other thing that your question raises is the matter of calendar. So I'm often, you know, asked whether corruption isn't just, you know, a constant in human society. And of course, to some extent it is. But what I did discover in doing the research for this book is that the degree of kind of capture of the political economy by, um, 
you know, by people intent on amassing ever more money has come and gone. It hasn't been a constant. And so the first real period of that was from about 1870 until about, I'd say, 1935 or so. Um, and then it subsides. And the question is, why? And the answer is a very sobering one. It is that that very disease, the Midas disease that had captured countries across the industrialized world, regardless not just of political party, but of political system, uh, that disease drove the world into World War I, World War II, the Great Depression, a pandemic, you know, rivaling the one that we just lived through. Um, and, you know, ironically, crisis tends to bring people together. And it's my hypothesis that it was this series of global cataclysms that led to about 40 years when, you know, the type of congressional hearing um, that you mentioned could actually be held. Um, that very significant hearings into the causes of the Great Depression were held and, and, and enormous, quite radical reforms were enacted during the New Deal period and in the 1930s across Europe as well. And that bought us, I would say, about 40 years when struggles for greater um, rights, uh, both for, you know, for labor, as well as women, a people of color, the environment, consumer protection, the um, independence movements in the former colonies, all of these things, they, they were fights, but at least they had some hope of succeeding. And then you get, as you just said, Talia, to the 1980s, when the pendulum seems to start swinging backwards again. And as you suggest, it seems to me that it starts on the cultural level, where you see uh, the Reagans, quite apart from the deregulatory, you know, frenzy that was unleashed in the Reagan administration, but Ronald and uh, Nancy Reagan were flaunting riches in a way that would have been would have seemed really. Uh, tacky uh, 10 or 20 years ago, people like my generation of, of college graduates were going into finance when our older siblings wouldn't have been caught dead on Wall Street. They were all smoking pot, you know, listening to listening to um, uh, wonderful music. Um, and what's ironic about, you know, Risky Business, for example, is that um, it was meant as a parody. It was meant to ward people off of this type of lifestyle. And yet, at least ostensibly, that's what it was meant for. But if you look at the kind of um, unspoken message being sent, it's that money is cool. Breaking the law in order to get rich is cool. Who gets the girl in the end? You know, the little cheating teenage boy. Uh, and it was dubbed a coming-of-age movie. So, hmm, that's an interesting rendition of coming-of-age. So coming-of-age in the 1980s 
really meant, you know, go for the gold, go for the money. That's where it's happening. And unfortunately, that ethos um, has taken root, continues to, it, it was, I want to say, reinforced by the Democratic administration of Bill Clinton. So Ronald Reagan gets and Margaret Thatcher get, you know, tarred with the brush of deregulation and they deserve it. But what we often forget is that the Labour and Democratic Party um, successors to those governments really rubber stamped a lot of the changes that they made. And the problem is that that where if it had just been Reagan and Thatcher, then it might have been possible to say, well, this is just an aberration. This was an obscene, you know, eight year aberration. Uh, now let's get back to a more sober and respectful, less wanton um, kind of economy. But once you had the other political party rubber stamping this ethos, um, then it becomes a bipartisan consensus. And the result, I want to say, at least in the United States, has been that we now have approximately half of our electorate that doesn't even bother to vote. Because on these issues, on this kind of moral, economic, political juggernaut, really both of the political parties behave the same way. And you can see that I mentioned earlier this series of Supreme Court decisions that have been narrowing the um, legal definition of corruption in the United States. What's fascinating is that they are all unanimous, these decisions, except one, which was seven to two. But, you know, uh, Americans keep talking about how divided the Supreme Court is. It turns out that on these issues, the court, just like the political parties, are basically uh, unanimous. And that leaves nowhere to go for the ordinary people who do rightly identify uh, corrupt practices all around them at the local, regional, and national levels. Well, I think it's very important that you point to the bipartisan nature of this corruption, because I think when it comes to issues of corporations and corruption, the U.S. Supreme Court is, for the most part, unanimous in how it makes its decisions, and it's more divided on some of the, the other cultural issues. So I, I think, you know, it's easy for us to just point the finger at the other side of the aisle, at the Republicans, but... There's a great documentary from from um, Adam Curtis on the 90s and how it was really under Bill Clinton that the financialization of the economy was um, cemented, so to speak. So it wasn't just the Reaganites and the Thatcherites, but a lot of that was really cemented and put into place um, in the Clinton eras. So Sarah Chase, it was really great to speak to you today and to get your insights on the origins of this um, myth of money being the source of corruption and of greed and tying that to a lot of the phenomena we see today on the global scale. So thank you very much for joining me. My pleasure, Tali. I'm delighted that you're doing this because I do think that this phenomenon is driving 
just about every one of the more, I want to say, apparently dramatic crises that, you know, we're facing in the world. And last time around, it led to two world wars, uh, a Great Depression and a global pandemic. I guess I'm wondering if we don't address it, what is the scale of the global calamity that lies in store for us now. So thank you. And thank you for watching theanalysis.news. If you enjoyed this content, please go to our website, theanalysis.news, and feel free to make a contribution by hitting the donate button at the top right corner of the screen. Also, don't forget to get onto our mailing list. That way you're updated every time there is a new episode. See you next week.